And he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Well, hello and welcome to this first Friday episode of Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. I'm Angela Tomlinson. Kyle is on the line, as is Marianne Harold from WQPH, and she also happens to be my sister. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Kyle Clement, you ought to be. Loyal to the Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, Clement has been involved in the curriculum, consultation, and formation of priests and laity relating to the Catholic liberation and exorcism for over 15 years. A member of the religious association Societas Matris Dolorissime, he with Father Chad Ripperger have recently formed the Liber Cristo organization, where he provides instruction, evaluation, case investigation, consultation, and ongoing formation for bishops, exorcists, dioceses, and religious institutes in the United States and abroad. Kyle, there's so much I could say about you, but how about if I just start with saying welcome to the show? Oh, thank you, Angela. I think less is more. Less is more. Well, Kyle, before we get started, um, I was listening to that intro about Paul to Titus where he says how important it is for us to be able to have sound doctrine so that we can both encourage one another and also to, to teach one another what the church really teaches, uh, the tradition as well as scripture. And I think that kind of sums up this journey that we've been having each first Friday with you. Oh, thanks, Angela. It's been a wonderful opportunity and I, to, to share with your listeners some of the treasures of our church, the true history of our church, and exactly um, what her role in history has been. Um, we have uh, we've neglected this in our homes, and so what happens is the writers of religious textbooks and, and public school textbooks, they rewrite history to diminish Catholic uh, influence or actually to disparage Catholic influence. And it's a grand and wonderful history to use la ancient language. It's a terrible history, meaning it's, it's so formidable. Um, the adversary sees us as a tremendous battle force stretched across the generations, battle banners popping in the sun, images of our lady before, behind, images of our Lord in the middle, um, the Eucharist in grand procession across the chronicles of time. We see it as um, a weak institution that is politically involved and fractured in her hierarchy and in her priesthood and diminished in her laity. She is still the church. She is still the hardy bark of St. Peter that navigates these turbulent waters. And so to reclaim our history and reset our course towards salvation instead of towards satisfaction, I think this is the opportunity. This is the mission of Reclamation Theology. Kyle, before we get into the core of the program today, we mentioned the Libro Cristo organization. Tell our listeners a little bit about that and where they can get more information for it. For the opportunity, Liber Cristo, www.librecristo.org. Um, the website has a lot of <clears throat> free videos and free information. Um, but we, Father Ripperger and I, and, and some others, put this together in order to have a Catholic response to liberation, to deliverance and healing, because 
it had become so Protestantized, it had become so diminished, and it actually was militating against the integrity of the church and the integrity of the sacraments. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Father speaks about this very, very straightforwardly. Um, the institute that we used to work with and for, uh, both he and I and other priests spoke directly against um, these practices, which blur the lines between priesthood and laity, which blur the lines and bring a, a very recent understanding or misunderstanding to how we are Christian community, how we are Catholic community, how we reach out to each other. The necessity for conversion rather than coexistence. And so all of these things are um, there on that website, along with an annual conference and some regional conferences. So Father is very uh, committed to promulgating this message, which is a return to Catholic theology, Catholic principles, which elevate and separate our priesthood and the vocations, the roles of men and women, to go back to a vibrant practice of the faith. And this is what dispels the demon, is when we do what we're supposed to do within our status and station in life. But ultimately what we found was that these newer models, even though they're called Catholic, are not Catholic. The definition being, do they yield to tried and true doctrine, dogma, Catholic principles, encyclicals, instructions, and they do not? Here's where they fail. Is they bring emotional consolation rather than spiritual healing. Spiritual healing is defined and has always been defined in the Domini Nom Sum Dignus. In the Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. In the Mass, it doesn't say anything in the canon of the Mass about cessation of physical suffering. What it talks about is the necessity to join our life experience, our human experience of suffering, pain, sorrow, to, to join that to the Christ, to the passion, so that the reparation, there is reparatory value, there's atonement value. So these concepts are brought into real-time um, real usage. This is the Catholic response. These modern models encourage um, the confession of the sins of others to the neglect of our own. Basically, it, it centers on what has happened to me, who did this to me, and then, though we're encouraged to forgive, we're not encouraged to go to the sacrament of confession to be reconciled with God the Father. We're not encouraged to go to the sacraments as the source of our relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son. So that, in a, in a nutshell, is the impetus and motivation behind um, Liber Christo and its methodology. When you bring someone emotional consolation and do not take them to the sacrament, you're actually working counter to salvation. You're actually working for the adversary when you delay or deny them access to the sacrament. You're not telling them, look, you're Catholic. You've got to go to the sacraments. You've got to seek reconciliation within your faith. The idea of modern counseling, whereby we learn to, quote, cope with the offenses against us, this is this thwarts or raises up an obex to the redemptive value of their suffering and the, and the value of drawing close to Christ through that human experience. And so 
it's not just that they're a little bit misguided. I think they may have very good intention, but the adversary sees greatly the potential to keep multitudes of Catholics away from the sacraments if they can, especially if they can do it under the guise of being Catholic. So I think this is a situation we really need to talk about. Go to LibreCristo.org, www.liber, L-I-B-E-R, Cristo, C-H-R-I-S-T-O, dot org. Um, there's recordings of these shows as well as other recordings on the free side. Uh, you can access Father Ripperger's talks, some of his talks on these various subjects. And what we found with organizing Liber Cristo was we set it up where are the three areas that we see the most difficulty in achieving liberation? Where are the areas that people have the most difficulty? And then we set them up statistically. We've Kyle, dealt with over 20,000 contacts in the last 20 years. And Kyle, so you, I'm just going to interrupt you just for one second. When you say liberation, a lot of our listeners don't know what you mean by liberation. So if liberation from the not, what, what are they being liberated from? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I'll, call, I'll quote Fulton Sheen, but the short answer is use deliverance as uh, we used to use deliverance and we wanted to largely because people wanted to engage in, in deliverance ministry. They wanted to make a differentiation between deliverance and exorcism. What was solemn? What was not? What could laity do? What could a regular priest do? These things. <clears throat> That's not traditional Catholic theology. Traditional Catholic theology and teaching on this area called it liberation and saw it on a spectrum. And so there was ordinary diabolical activity and extraordinary diabolical activity divided into uh, various levels. But historically, one would work on this spectrum until you met resistance or until there was an element, an institutional element at that point you went over into a solemn case. And so we've had a, a very good methodology over the centuries on how to deal with this and how to go through this, but we've discarded it, we've, we've thrown it away like many of our Catholic treasures in a pursuit of emotional consolation through uh, Protestant healing and deliverance um, paradigms or, or schemes. And that's a departure. Now to quote Fulton Sheen, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, it's not liberation from something, it's liberation for something. It is the freedom to choose the good. It is the removal of the obexes, identifying and removing the obexes or impediments to grace so that the soul becomes reconciled with God, the soul uh, attains a state of grace, and then in the working to sustain that state of grace, to, to be reconciled with God the Father, they're liberated from the diabolical elements as well as the worldly elements that are working in concert to keep them distanced from God the Father uh, and a full practice of their faith. So there's the difference between liberation uh, and deliverance. It's liberation for something, and that for something, to mystically, and to quote St. Thomas, whose feast day is tomorrow, that is the pursuit of the good. One has to be free to choose the good. So true free will is a free will unencumbered by the bonds of sin, the impediments of grace, the effects of past life mistakes. And so one is free to be, as St. Paul says, a new creation in Christ, free to make sacrifice, free to give themselves to God the Father through joining their suffering to Christ the Son and to have that long-term reconciled relationship 
through this reconciled relationship, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit flows in the form of charity, which is ultimately love of one's neighbor for love of God. As long as you've got an unforgiveness, as long as you've got authority issues, as long as you've got a defect in virtue, the practice of Christian charity, which is the third in the progression of theological virtues, is going to be lacking, which is love of, of God manifest as love of neighbor. And thank you, Kyle. So continue, you were mentioning about your caseloads when I interrupted you for the definition. I apologize. Quite all right, quite all right. This, this model is, is essentially drawing on the ancient model of monastic response. How, did, how was this phenomenon dealt with historically through the centuries? Um, what was the methodology by which we determined extraordinary versus ordinary diabolical activity? And then how it was methodically dealt with. And so what we've done is just revived this model and we exposed for almost 20 years, we exposed thousands and thousands of cases. I think I exaggerated a little bit. I think our case count was 18,200 and some odd as of, as of December 31st over the years. Um, uh, 18,200 and some odd contacts. And so we divided them up into where are people having the most problem in achieving liberation? So statistically, they are in, in this descending order. Either a lack of forgiveness and or retention of uh, our justified sin, self-justified sin, meaning it sounds like this, I can forgive everyone except for so-and-so who abused me or I'm going to continue to hold on to this relationship, which I know is not good for me, but I'm going to make all these excuses um, to hold on to this relationship. So it's the, the retention of something that is inconsistent with our faith and that has a sin linkage, a direct sin linkage. Either the complacency in someone else's sin or our own personal sin of retaining a, a, a sin, being justified in our unforgiveness are in our uncharitable behavior toward another. This was the number one area. The number two area was defect in virtue. And in the defect in virtue specifically deals with the 64 daughter virtues of the four cardinal virtues of prudence, temperance, fortitude, um, and justice. And so this deep understanding of functional virtue uh, and how the, the lesser virtues flow from the mother virtues and how all of that shapes character. That's so much missing in our society. What we're finding is that because of the lack of virtue, because of defect in virtue and in formation of character, what we're finding is that most people are having ordinary diabolical activity. Ordinary diabolical activity is temptation, oppression, these things which are ordinary activities of the devil. But what's happening is because of the lack of virtue, because of their lack of formation and their lack of character, because of the superficial disorder of the lower faculties, meaning they feel, they don't think, when they experience this, it's ordinary diabolical activity, but they're experiencing they're responding or reacting in an extraordinary way, meaning their threshold of adversity is extremely low, so everything is a crisis. You see a physical reflection of this in our reaction to pain. If we have the least little 
ache or our pain, we want to take something to alleviate it. We avoid the cross in all at all opportunities because we're not willing to suffer <clears throat> either in our body or in our in our mind in reparation for our sins. I twist my ankle because I was doing something I shouldn't do. Pain is to limit my movement while I heal. But if I deny that and say, no, 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 I've got to go to work, so I'm going to take all these medications so that I don't feel that pain, then I'm not reminded of the injury. I'm not reminded of my mistake. I'm not reminded of what I did. And so if I don't medicate and I'll offer this up for my own sins or I use it as a reminder that um, I shouldn't have done what I did, then we've got a much different um atmosphere for the cultivation of virtue so it's this understanding that we have a diminished character and in the diminishment of character because of the lack of virtue we're more susceptible to the ordinary machinations of the devil and they have a greater effect on us do you think that's third, what's, oh i'm sorry go ahead do, do you think that's what's behind uh the movement to legalize marijuana and drugs and all these kind of escapist things I think that that ultimately is at the at the heart of it is that we we have an avoidance or an aversion to to any form of suffering and you know we as Catholics this makes a, a this has made us different since day one this has made us different since day one is the understanding of exactly what was going on on Good Friday on Calvary exactly what he was doing and then what he was asking of us um, no other no other um, faith discipline has this none no other quote religion especially the diabolical false religions is it's all about a feel-good mentality it's about the alleviation of suffering and even within the catholic church we've got a strong uh, group that says that re redemptive suffering or um, suffering for reparation is not a catholic concept it very much is it's a key catholic concept it's a key precept that we must join our suffering to christ St. Paul writes about it. The church fathers have written about it. <clears throat> it's very, very clear. And so when we diminish this, when we even the you look at the political atmosphere where our prelates and, and others are, are talking about the alleviation of suffering, um, even we've got one prelate who goes so far as to say the cry of the poor must stop. This is not what Jesus said. Jesus said the poor will always be with you. And so that we have to look at this from a Catholic perspective, just because it has a political appeal and an emotional appeal. Catholic social justice has been co-opted, not only in this country, but around the world. Um, whole nother subject for a whole nother day. The third area that we found that people had the most problem was right understanding of power and authority. This area is insidious because in our society, we're told um, modernists and the relativists and even those in the church, we have to understand that many of our priests, especially those who went to seminary after 1960, many of them are deformed in their understanding of power and authority because we departed the moral theology of the natural law and divine positive law. We de departed the right understanding of these largely. And I'm painting with a broad brush. There are, of course, exceptions. But generally, <clears throat> what happened is, especially in the diocesan seminaries or seminaries that were not run by religious orders, what happened was this got shifted. And this is one of the reasons that 
we don't, um, a lot of modern priests do not have a foundation in spiritual warfare. They don't have a uh, foundation in angels. They do not have a, a good solid foundation in metaphysics or sacramental and sacrificial theology that's lacking. And it was replaced with administrative skills, accounting, and, and various other things that they were now going to be asked to do. I'm not faulting them. I'm simply saying we are all a product of our formation or deformation, as it were. And so the failure to understand power and authority in a traditional Thomistic way, in a functional way, and it's not, it doesn't work that way because St. Thomas said it works that way. It works that way because it works that way. St. Thomas simply documented this and says, here's what we see. Here's, here's what bears out over the centuries. And he is, um, he's backed up by those who came before him and those who came after him. A lot of these questions are settled by the church. And what, what's happening modernly is we're going back and dredging up these things that were settled by the church, settled definitively by the church, and they must stay settled if we're going to have a continuum of our faith, if we're going to have a continuum of doctrine and dogma in which everything said today must stand on the shoulders of, of that which came before it. And we have a, a significant rupture um, in the 60s, both societally and ecclesially, with this concept of everything must conform to not known doctrine and dogma that preceded it. That's precisely what we're talking about in Reclamation Theology. Liber Cristo takes the theory and makes it practical and gives you practical ways to reorder your life, reorder your faculties, bring yourself back into the, the font of grace that gushed forth from his side as an ocean of mercy for us. In order to avail ourselves of mercy, we must walk through the door of justice. This is simple Thomistic uh, theology, and it's not, to, it's not theology because Thomas said it. It's, it's theology because God said it. God deigned it. Christ lived it. And if we don't enter into his sacred body, if we don't enter into the mystical body of Christ through that wound in his side, through that torrent of mercy that demands justice, he's on the cross in satisfaction of God's justice. And so we have to understand it in that way if we're going to be open to grace. That's Liber Cristo in a short flyover. Thank you for the opportunity. And it's so helpful, Kyle. I, I learn so much. These are things that I'm not, you know, we're not normally taught. Uh, these things, and it seems like a lot of the things that we're learning um, day to day in our culture are the exact opposite of what you say, like forgiveness and, um, you know, it, it just all of it, all of it, you know, or it doesn't hurt to look. That's the other one. Oh, it doesn't hurt. To, you're talking about attachments. And we've had several priests in here the past couple of weeks talking about the fact that about 80% of the sins that are confessed in the confessional are addictions to pornography. And it comes into two classes. One is there are those that are addicted to pornography but don't want to let it go. And then there's those who are addicted to pornography but don't think they can let it go. They feel helpless to let it go. And I think that, does that fall in your first category, Kyle? Does that fall in the first category? 
Oh, I think that you illustrate a really, really good point is it falls both in first category and second category and it actually touches the third. And so that's the beauty of this process. So let's talk it through. How it addresses the first category is that there is a, uh, an attachment to usually self-image that allows them to justify looking at the images. And so if you can justify in the Luciferian language, it sounds like this. You deserve. No one understands you. You need some you time. This will help you sleep. This will make you feel better about yourself. This is a victimless crime. That's all Luciferian language. And so that goes to the first category, which is uh, retention or self-justified sin. So there, at some level... The addict, no matter what he's addicted to, is justifying, satisfying the lower faculties, the desire for this moment of pleasure. And he uses all kinds of excuse, everything from biological release to God made me this way to all kinds of things to justify this sin. If you're justifying a sin, then you are afoul of this first principle which is there's no justified sin. There's no justified distance from God. That's at the heart of the first element, which is the retention, uh, an attachment, the retention of a practice or the justifying of sin. So that's number one. And you have to be exculpatory and go all the way to it. Number two, what's lacking in virtue is the disordering of the faculties whereby the lower faculty is ruling the or holding hostage the soul. So you will talk about men who are, and women who look at pornography, they will not tell you, I made an intellectual decision based upon the doctrine and dogmas of the church and the absolute truth that Jesus came to, to suffer and die for me. In light of all of those things, I made a decision that it was good for me to watch this, and therefore I moved in the will to satisfy that intellectual decision. You, they can't speak that way because that's the proper ordering of the faculties. The disordering of the faculty said, I was tired, I was lonely, I had a fight with my wife, I had a fight with my husband, nobody understands me or appreciates me. In this language, God is not the focus, the human is the focus. The creator is obscured by our self-love or our self-deprecation. Either way, it's a placing of the human, the creature, in the front of the creator so that the creator is obscured. And in that moment, we no longer have the image and likeness of God. And then where it addresses the third way is, especially for men, if you want your daughter to be promiscuous, if you want your daughter to dress immodestly, if you want your daughter to be engaging in activities that are um, inappropriate, sexual activities and other activities, you watch pornography. Because when you do that, you've just... You've just eliminated your ability to tell clean from unclean because you yourself are unclean. Man's first job is to be able to tell clean from unclean. He must remain pure so that grace flows through him. He is in a position of authority, meaning he's under the authority of God the Father. He's under the authority of the church. And in, and in that right ordered authority, he now has authority over his children. And so authority is not only the obligation to subject ourselves to it, it is the obligation to exert it. It is the obligation to 
pass on the faith. It is the obligation to correct. It is the obligation to shape and form those souls in our care. But most importantly, our job as men is to provide a safe haven where there are not spirits in the home. The home should be a blessed place, a place of peace, a place of clarity, a place of purity. And if you're bringing pornography into the home, either in your head or clicking on it in your home, you're letting the wolves in among your lambs. You, if you can't stop this for your sake, stop it for the sake of those who are dependent upon your purity and your ability to be clear in your judgment and and in giving to them God's words for them. Libra Cristo has short videos on the free side on pornography and exactly how this works and more importantly how to combat it, how to stop it because souls and salvation and the preservation of our faith are dependent upon you. This sin is not a victimless sin. This sin pervades throughout all of Christendom throughout all of Catholicism, and this sin is prevalent, but it works really on the lower faculties and the weakness of a man and a woman. It works on the, on the weaknesses of our flesh, and so that's how this particular phenomenon touches all three of these, and you'll find that a lot of these things do have a manifestation in all three areas. And Kyle, last uh, show we talked about Herodias and... and um the spirits that we were trying to discern who were behind that whole situation with Herod and John the Baptist. Is there a particular spirit in your uh, experience that is driving this corruption? Yeah, this particular spirit is Belial. And Belial is about arousal for the sake of arousal. It's about the elevation of sexual pleasure to the primary thought are the primary concern to the overriding um, stimulation. And so that's what Belial does. So Herodia was dancing the dance of Belial. In the dance of Belial, the, it's arousal for the sake of arousal. Again, what happens is men would tell you it was a woman, women would tell you it was a man. It's, it's a, it has a transgender element to it. It has a drag queen element to it. It has all of those things that we look at as perverted, but our eye is drawn to it. It's over-the-top perversion. This is, you know, the drag queen is not dressing as a woman. The drag queen is mocking a woman. It is mocking femininity. It is mocking right-ordered uh, women. And so we don't see that. And so we're drawn to it in the same way that we're drawn to something that, that doesn't look quite right. In the same way that Eve was drawn to a talking serpent. Here's something that doesn't, something's not right here. And so we're drawn to it. Our curiosity does not serve us well here. We need to really take um, umbrage at this and understand what draws you to it is not godly. Belial is aptly depicted in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ in the opening scenes in the Garden of Gethsemane. The demon takes on a character there that is neither man nor woman. But it's interesting. You ask a man, was that a man or a woman? He'd say that was a woman. You ask a woman, was that a man or a woman? They would say it was a man. This is Belial aptly depicted. And so if you'll notice in that garden, the 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 
character was moving in a seductive way, but it wasn't feminine seductive. It wasn't masculine seductive. It was a universal language, body language of seduction. And so that's the thing of Belial. Belial also depends upon the emotional buy-in of the individual. You must be moved emotionally because once he starts to move or it starts to move you emotionally, now you've elevated emotion above intellect. And if he can draw you in with an emotional response, then you're largely lost. And so you, this is what happens um, in those sins that are not an outside force, but an inside force. So we release chemicals in our brain. We become, uh, when we view pornography, when we view these things, when we allow ourselves to become aroused through an elevation of emotion, we give up the lower faculties. I mean, we give up the higher faculties and the lower faculties become superior in that moment. Yes, thank you, Kyle. Now, before the show, Mary Ann, who's on the line. Mary Ann, are you there? Yes, I am. I'm so fascinated with what he's saying. I can't, I can't absorb it fast enough. It's great. That's <laughs> why we put this. Enjoying it, Angela. <laughs> That's thank why you we for bringing this program to us. Yes. That's why we put it on. Ahead, so we put it on our podcast. Put on both stations. Yes, on both Your stations. Podcast. Yes. Yes, I have a question. If this is a good time, I, it I relates back to what he talked about the lower virtues and how the effect is oppression or whatever. Uh, if one went to go on the website, would you find how to rid yourself or, or deal with the oppression? Because I know a lot of people suffering from that. It's a great question, and yes, you would. There is a section called the four-phase diocesan protocol, and what it is is simply um, a bringing into modern language and articulating in modern language what the ancient approach to the to this phenomenon was. And so just to run through it very quickly, and what we find is is 90%, this is huge, 90% of our cases lift in phase one. And so that what that's telling us is that oppressions, ordinary diabolical activity, and light extraordinary diabolical activity, oppressions lift in phase one. And it's extremely consistent. What is phase one? Phase one is detailed on the website, but it is a monastic approach to prayer and discipline. And what it is very, very simply is, if you will order your life to prayer rather than order order prayer to your life, if you give prayer the primacy, if you give your faith the primacy for 30 days, the clarity that comes from that is amazing and the oppression will lift. We're We're in Lent. It's a perfect time to do it. Pray it, set hours, six, noon, six, pray, set prayers. This is a monastic approach. And if you want to scrub this thing out, then you'll do it. You know, it's, it's like walking around in the floor. All of us have done this. you got a stain on the carpet or a stain on the tile. You walk around it sometimes for months until finally you say, basta, enough. I'm going to hit my knees and I'm going to scrub this thing out. I don't care what it takes. And you do it and you stick with it. That's the movement in the will that is necessary to be rid of oppression is you have to stop walking around the spot. You have to stop walking around the thing and you have to get on your knees and scrub it out. And the way you do it is through this monastic prayer and discipline first 30 days. Incidentally, there's a money back guarantee. If this doesn't work, we'll give you double your money back because it costs you nothing. But 
<laughs> Sounds good, Cal. That's you awesome. know, we have in our adoration chapel, a lot of people come up and ask me these things. Like, uh, well, I don't know if you heard a phone call coming in, but a woman yesterday asked me um, if she went to court to try to get some justice on some horrible thing that happened to her, and she was crying her eyes out, crying her eyes out. And, you know, we're told to forgive. Is someone wrong uh, or incorrect to go to court to try to expose something that happened to them? Because now she's in a great state of oppression. That's what I was thinking of. When she just tried to call on this phone while we're talking, I'm saying the Lord wants me to ask you that question because I didn't know the answer. I think it's a great question, but here's the thing. Is moral theology prior to 1960 was really, really clear, and it answered these questions. And so let's apply it to this particular sense. First of all, it talked in the language of duty and obligation. And so where her oppression is coming from is she's doing the right thing for the wrong reason. This is why the adversary is present to her, is she's doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Out of charity, we're called to be an instrument of chastisement and God's justice. But it has to be about the other soul. And so if she goes to court, it has to be for the ultimate salvation of the other soul. It has to be for an understanding that the person's conscience is pricked and they have to say, hey, my actions have these consequences which take me away from God. And so if she goes, this is how Christ is. Christ went to court. Christ went to court. He was convicted and he died for us and for the very people who were killing him. So when she goes to court, she has to have no horse in the race. It's simply you go to court, you tell your story, and then let the chips fall where they may. But her concern has to be for the soul of the person she's taking to court, not for her own gain or her own, quote, exposing. She's simply God's instrument of justice. In that case, she's not open open to, to retaliation by the adversary. And so that's how we should place the court system. We have to do what we're obliged to do as citizens. If you have a situation that you must report, this is the mandatory reporting thing. If there's a situation you have to report, report it. But in your heart has to be for the good, the salvation of the person that you're reporting, not out of vengeance to avenge the victim. This is a very hard thing for us modernly because we pervert the sense of justice. We pervert how we are to serve um, the justice, not the secular sense of justice, but God's justice. Does that answer that? Yes, it does very, very much. And I know the Holy Spirit intervened. So, Kyle, you tell me that the hot potato mm-hmm. question. Thank you, Miriam. The hot potato question, uh, based on what Kyle <laughs> just said, is apply that to the church abuse. Oh, oh boy. Excellent. I think that it, it applies directly to abuse in the church because here, here's the thing. Only if you pick any entity, any entity in the world that has the ability to withstand this, it's the Catholic Church. The adversary motivated men who should have never been in taken into seminary and then we were paralyzed by our fear when our sons and daughters started telling us what these men were doing we were paralyzed by our fear we were paralyzed and did not take up for our children so this is as much ours as it is theirs there are no innocent 
victims here other than the victims themselves. And so this shows all of the disorder, but of all the institutions in the church, I mean, in the world, only the Catholic Church could be used by God to bring this horrible travesty to light, to bring to light the travesty of pedophilia, homosexuality, sodomy, of how this is tearing not only our church, but our society and our world apart. And so in this way, we are truly, we are truly the mystical body of Christ because only the Catholic Church could stand this type of scourging. Only the Catholic Church could go through this, maintain faith by a remnant bunch who is willing to pray not only for the victims, but the perpetrators. Not only pray for that, but to say, we must purify, we must respond. And this he uses us in the same way he used Israel, because you've got to understand that the Catholic Church is what Judaism looks like if you believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. God's chosen people, meaning we chose God. And we chose him and we said, do with us what you will. We said that. Each one of us who have prayed the Stations of the Cross, St. Alphonsus Liguori, we've said that line, love me, Lord, and then do with me what you will. Listen to that line. We open ourselves up to this violence. Are we not willing to make good on our promises made on bended knee? Each and every one of us have, purify, have prayed, Lord, purify the church. <laughs> what are you willing to do to make good on that prayer? Human suffering is needed to purify the church, not the suffering of the victims, but us suffering the outrages of these actions and the fact that we've allowed this in the church. This is why we're that in, in, in this time, and I think that this is, I want to talk about this virus, this pandemic, but this is a form of chastisement, and we've yet to see bishops and cardinals who have promoted these practices. We've yet to see them in sackcloth. We've yet to see them going into the monasteries to live a life of reparation. We've yet to see them with a public mea culpa. We've yet to see the lay people who said, I did not believe my son, mea culpa. I did not believe my daughter, mea culpa. We've yet to get the public mea culpa. We've yet to have the conversion of Nineveh. We've yet to have these conversions and these public acts. We're too concerned about what's happening in the environment. We won't sweep our own porch. We want to sweep everybody else's. Guys, we've got to get busy. We've got to roll up our sleeves, hit our knees and say, what do we need to do to make this work? We have to expose bishops and, and cardinals and prelates who have hidden these people and say, when you do these things, you're no longer acting as, a, as an apostle. When I don't believe my son, when I don't stand up for the souls that are in my care, I'm no longer acting as a father. This is, this is a time of great chastisement, spiritually and physically. This is the time to use the tools that we've used anciently in the past to address these things, and we're not doing it. And so the everything that happens, happens providentially. If it happens providentially, it has a salvific purpose. We have to be willing to suffer to expose, to give thanks, and to use that salvific purpose, that the circumstances for the purification of the church, for the conversion of our priests and our prelates and our bishops, and our own ultimate conversion. That's what we've been given is a great gift, but it is a passion and it's calling for us to be present to it 
each and every one of us individually. But in what you said yeah. earlier, Kyle, was that uh, it's actually for the salvation of the soul of the priest that's committing the act that you're obligated to bring it to light. You know, I think most of us were feeling, well, we don't want to hurt the church, so we'll just pray for him. But what you're saying is the salvation of his own soul or the salvation of the souls of the bishops who are complicit in this, who are covering it for the wrong reasons, their souls then become in jeopardy. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. What happens is when you've got a prelate who dismisses a priest or or discards a priest or hides a priest, if he does not address that straight up, that he is saying the words of Caiaphas, precisely Caiaphas, who said, better one man should die than a nation. And so they're discarding these priests, they're turning their back on their sons, their obligation to these pedophile, homosexual, sodomite priests, they're turning their back on them who need them the most to correct them, to chastise them, to bring them to public trial. This goes exactly back to the lady who, who's about wanting to go to court and how it affects her. It's not about her, it's about the other person. It's about being an instrument of justice. It's about being a father like God the Father. And these guys don't have the stomach for it, but when they turn away and when they do that, then many of them have these the charges against them they continue to celebrate mass they continue to serve on usccb they continue to do their uh, ecclesial duties their episcopate duties their prelate duties while priests below them who have the same allegations are discarded hidden sent to mental health facilities they're not being ministered to this can't continue um i urge people who have a long a, a voice I urge Bishop Joe Strickland, I urge uh, Michael Voris, I urge all of those who have a voice in the secular media to bring this forward. Justice is justice for all. Justice is justice for every creature. And it has to cut across the lines. It has to cut across all lines of hierarchy, all lines of episcopacy. We have to see sackcloth and ashes. If you're going to lead us to sackcloth and ashes, then do it. King of Nineveh, the secular king who gave in to Jonah's word, repent. Uh, that's what's lacking. We get all kinds of lip service from the USCCB. We get all kinds of lip service from uh, the hierarchy in the church. We don't see we don't see sackcloth and ashes. We don't see setting all the public agenda aside for climate control and so socialism. We don't see setting all that aside until we get our house in order. This is exactly how chastisement has worked throughout the ages. And we're prolonging our passion until we as a people are willing to do this as the people of Nineveh following our hierarchy doing this until we start doing this. This is not only going to continue, it's going to get worse. And there is a key argument that is not being made. Mr. Voice, you have a large audience. I don't know if you'll ever hear this, but people of your ilk, you have a large audience, you have a large uh, responsibility. Bishop Joseph Strickland, same for you. There is a large audience. I'm speaking to the two of you directly. Until we address this, not in an accusatory term, but in a term that says, lead us and we will follow. 
lead us, don't lead us into modernism and relativism we can't follow, but lead us into holiness, lead us into sanctity through reparation and through correction of our mistakes. Embrace the chastisement that has come upon us as gift and make clear that when a prelate is involved in politics, in government, in one world policy, in socialism, no matter how high his rank, when he is covering pedophile priests, when he's obstructing justice, when he's not following the same dictates that he imposes on others, then he's no longer acting like a bishop. He's no longer acting like a prelate. He's no longer acting as an official of the church. And as so, he is personally responsible for these transgressions because he's no longer acting as an agent of the church or within his office. What is the net effect of this? The church does not stand the monetary carnage, the wreckage, the, the, the dis, distribution of assets to, to cover the sinful, non-episcopal, non-apostolic acts of priests, bishops, and others. These heinous acts they're doing, that's not their church. That's not their office. Engaging in politics, that's not the call of a bishop. That's not the call of a prelate. When we start speaking this language as laity and our willingness to follow them to holiness, but not into politics, not into political activism, not into socialism, not into covering up for sodomy and sin and homosexuality. When we make this clear, when we as a flock of sheep stop at this border of howling of the howling wasteland, a void of virtue and doctrine and dogma, we stop and we say we will not follow you into that howling wasteland. You know, Kyle, the the one one exception um, or footnote I would have to what you just said is uh, politics. Why are we covering for po- why are our priests and our bishops and our pope covering for politicians who are supporting abortion? Why is there such silence on the issue of murdering our children and acting like that's that that it's okay for us or worse, they're voting? the politicians who have the blood of all these children on their hands. That's the one political issue I think they would be vocal about. Follow the money. Follow the money. The USCCB is largely funded through U.S. government grants, and it's a huge amount of money. The USCCB is a rogue organization. Very simply, it's, it's doing everything except defending the faith I think we have to call it out, but just follow the money. Shame on them. Shame on them if they're allowing the murder of children to continue because they won't call out these. If they called out these politicians that call themselves whatever religion they call themselves out, if our priests, our parish priests and our bishops called out these politicians and said, you must not, you cannot support the murder of innocent life, it would stop. But because there is well, silence on that, I don't know, Miriam. What do you? What do you? You were going to. No, say I something? just want to say that I've heard that the reason they will not speak out from any Boston or, uh, church I've been to is because of the tax exemption. Shame on that them. is what the motivation is. That they their tax exempt status might be uh, threatened. I say, give it up. Give it up. But why would the tax you know? status be threatened if they said you cannot? You you're, not allowed you to, you're not allowed to speak out. Well, what if they just said you cannot vote for politicians who are perpetuating and supporting abortion? Simple. 
You don't have to say any party or any person. I don't understand why. I mean, that's what our church teaches. I think, again, well. follow. if it's to keep a tax exemption, follow the money. These are Trojan horses that are fostered by those who are too weak to speak. Um, that's, I, I think, very simply, when was the last court case we saw where the IRS said to the Catholic Church, if you continue to do this, you're going to lose your tax status. Okay, let's have a hearing. Let's have a trial. This is a tenet of our faith. We don't get those cases. We just have this fear, this Trojan horse, this uh, protard this, that is fostered that said you can't say anything or you're going to lose your tax-exempt status. If you can't say anything, then why are we talking about redistribution of wealth? Why are we uh, advertising diocesan appeal that gives to Catholic charities, which is politically uh, motivated? You can't talk out of both sides of your mouth. You're either Catholic or you're not. And so the tax-exempt status, what, what difference does it make? That's the whole point, is you can't be held hostage by a government. You can't be held hostage by a political party. There are people who should have been doing public reparation for the last five elections, and they're not. The, the, the hierarchy is clearly involved in politics, and it's involved in politics which militate directly against our faith. Very simple. Follow the money. If you're making a decision monetarily based that affects your faith, then you're out of bounds. You're out of your lane. You're, you're acting beyond what you should be doing. Uh, very simply, and we as laity have to be the one who says the emperor has no clothes. We, we have to say, this is not consistent with our faith. And when you do these things, you're no longer church. You're no longer covered by your idea of agency that you can act in such an egregious way and the church will pay the bill. We will not. So, Kyle, we only have seven minutes or six minutes. You mentioned the coronavirus. Tell us, uh, can, can you address this in six minutes or less? Well, I'd hope to spend most of the program, but I think I like where we went today. Understand very simply, I'll give you uh, LifeSite News has a wonderful article on Pope St. Gregory the Great's response to a plague. It was, and part of what he did, I want three takeaways from this. One is we have in the church always seen chastisement as a gift. It is an opportunity to correct mistakes. And it involved our hierarchy, go back into the Old Testament, go back um, in times when we've seen this functional, is it's always been led by our prelates, by our leaders, by our presidents, by our kings, by our popes. And it is a donning of sackcloth and ashes, understanding that chastisement is a gift from God that shows us where our error is. Holy Father, I'm going to be very simple. This thing came out of China. Hit your knees, sackcloth and ashes, for giving up the church in China. For giving up the church in China. This chastisement is being visited upon the world. That's the way the ancients would have seen it. That's the way 18 centuries of Catholicism would have seen it. Pope St. Gregory did not cower. He was the new pope. The pope right before him died of the plague. And he immediately went to the streets and says, we're going to do rogation. We're going to go through and we're going to rotate through doing the litanies. And we're going to carry an image of the Blessed Mother. We're going to process with an image of the Blessed Mother. It was the image painted by St. Luke. And the, the plague retreated in front of this image. And prayers to her, the rosary, and understanding that she is our intercessor. 
she is the one who makes this argument for the people. And she's not arguing justice. She's not arguing fear. She's arguing faith. And so that's what it takes from a pope. That's what it takes from a president. That's what it takes from a king. That's what it takes from a head of a domestic church, a bishop. That's what it takes because that's what it has always worked. That's what has always worked. Kyle, point. Ex- Kyle, just explain quickly about giving up the church in China. People might not know what you mean by that. Then Google it. I don't have time to, to go into it, but essentially what happens is this Holy Father gives the church in China over to the government. All the Catholic churches are closed as a result of this virus. They immediately use this, this platform to close every Catholic church in China, so and secondarily was, other churches. So there was an underground church all these years with Cardinal Zen. He got pushed aside, and a new cardinal that was was appointed mm-hmm. with the cooperation with the communist government was appointed. So they pretty much pushed him aside, created a state co-opt. I guess it's a Catholic church or something. Is that correct, yeah. Kyle? Well, it's, it was Catholic church in name only, and now they've used this as an opportunity to shut it all down. This was an egregious mistake. We need a mea culpa. We need a mea culpa. This Pope is willing to apologize for things that we didn't do. He's willing to apologize to, to all kinds of people for all kinds of things that don't require an apology. And when one is needed and called for, we're not hearing it. We're hearing crickets. Okay. And what's the second thing, Kyle? The second thing is when someone sneezes and you say, God bless you, quaint practice, lovely, it comes out of the plague. Because one of the signs of the plague, of this particular plague that happened in 530 uh, with Pope St. Gregory the Great, the sneeze was one of the first signs and so people immediately god bless you it was the calling to understand that if you die die right with god it's not that fear of death it is the fear of dying separated from god that's where our what our fear should be that leads me into the third one in the 1930s franklin delano roosevelt in a series of talks called fireside chats said something very very poignant And he said to the American people in a time of great darkness, he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And what he's talking about is a Thomistic principle. Fear is a vice contrary to fortitude. Fortitude is the willingness to engage the arduous, the willingness to engage the arduous. And so it's a virtue that's largely in the will that denotes we're willing to join our suffering to Christ, the arduous, the hard, the, that stretched out over time to do that which we may not want to do under the influence of our lower faculties such as desire and emotion. Fear paralyzes us. Fear interrupts the right ordering of faculties. It takes us down out of the intellect. And the primary fear is fear of death or fear of the unknown. Fear and trust cannot occupy the same space. Trust is the answer to fear. If it's happening, it's happening with God's providence, with his knowledge. And if he's allowing it, it has a salvific purpose. Mind this moment for every bit of grace you can bring into your family. 
mind this moment not for the horror of the plague, but read about St. Gregory's response. Let's dust off those images of the Blessed Mother. Let's renew the devotion to Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Say it in your homes. Say it in your churches. Don't worry about how we receive the Eucharist physically. It's about how we receive the Eucharist spiritually. And that's all the time we have left. Kyle Christo, Kyle Christo, Kyle Clement, LibreCristo.org. Is that correct? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back next First Friday. You have been listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFICatholicRadio.org.